Hello, Darksiders. Just a heads up about today's episode. The story deals with violent, sadistic and horrific crimes. It is absolutely not meant for little ears. Listener discretion could not be more advised. If this doesn't sound like your cup of tea, I wouldn't blame you for signing off now. But if you're still there, let's get on with the show. Today's story starts out in Domachevo, Poland, in September 1939. At the time, Domachevo was situated in the middle of Poland, on the banks of the river Bug. It was a well-known spa resort and boasted many hotels, with tourism being its main income generator. However, like many towns in the region, there was a definite divide between the inhabitants. The town itself was almost entirely Jewish, while the surrounding areas where the peasants lived and cultivated the land was almost entirely non-Jewish. The Jews supplied goods and services to the peasants as well as to tourists, and the peasants sold their produce to the Jews. However, there was a harmony within the town. People helped each other and supported each other, no matter their wealth status or their religion. It was truly a community. This societal spirit was never more embodied than in the friendship of two young boys, Ben and Andrei. They played together daily, running through the streets, chasing the pigeons, and splashing in the stream that ran behind Andrei's house. But what was already marching towards the small town of Domachevo and its unsuspecting congruous citizens was something so horrific that it would leave scars on the community for lifetimes to come. It would pit neighbour against neighbour, religion against religion, and friend against friend. This is Darkseid, and I am your host, Suze. So what happened in Domachevo in 1939? What happened that would pitch our harmonious community against each other. Hmm. Let's find out. Poland, September 1939. The German foe begins its ruthless march of conquest. On September 1st, 1939, Germany commenced an invasion on the eastern front of Poland. Two days after the invasion, Britain and France declared war with Germany. Red columns in a sudden drive have been hurled by Stalin across the Polish border on a wide front. The beleaguered Polish army, practically en route before the German onslaught, can offer but feeble resistance to the Soviet invasion. As the advancing Russian columns ride roughshod over what is left of Polish territory, the partition of Poland is arranged in Berlin and Moscow. On the 17th of September, 1939, the Soviet Foreign Minister, Vyacheslav Molotov, declared that the Polish government had ceased to exist. 
the USSR then exercised the fine print of the Hitler-Stalin non-aggression pact, the invasion and occupation of Poland, with the intent that the two forces would eventually meet in the middle of Poland, and both nations would lay claim to the country. Poland's 34 million inhabitants, crushed, scattered and enslaved. Tens of thousands of square miles of territory shrink before the movement of lightning-armoured columns. This was 1939, and there was little in the way of telecommunications at this time, other than telegrams, and the more remote and rural a location, the less news filtered their way. So, when Russian forces stormed Domachevo, located in the centre of Poland, not only did the invasion come as a complete shock to the residents of their small town, but Domachevo was one of the last towns to be captured by the Soviets before both Russia and Germany had laid waste and claim to the entire country. The Russian forces soon laid a harsh regime on the town, either conform and comply with their command, or become an enemy of the state. The people of Domachevo soon experienced a complete shift in the division of labour, social standing and equity within the town. But, to understand how this impacted our two young friends, Ben and Andrei, and the residents of Domachevo, as well as with all other Polish towns, we need to understand the social makeup prior to the invasion. I've already mentioned that the town of Domachevo was almost entirely Jewish, whilst the surrounding areas where the peasants lived and cultivated the land was almost entirely non-Jewish. Whilst the community of Domachevo had a harmonious existence, with neighbour helping neighbour, there was a distinct social, ethnic and religious divide. The Jews, who were mostly of Belarusian descent, owned most of the town, and benefited from the tourism that the local spa attracted, and thus were wealthy. The non-Jewish peasants, who were mostly of Polish descent, lived out in the farmlands, and had a hand-to-mouth existence by comparison. This ethnic division of labour was very common in Eastern Europe at the time. Ben Zion Blustein was a son of a wealthy Belarusian Jewish hotel owner in Domachevo. They benefited greatly from the tourist trade that the town attracted, and Ben and his family never wanted for food or warmth. Andrei Zaboniuk was of Polish descent, and lived his childhood somewhat outside of this established division of labour. His family did not have land to tend, and so they lived in a sparse wooden bungalow just inside the town. His mother had made a meagre living by doing laundry and other casual work for the Jewish community. And when he was old enough, he worked for them also, doing odd jobs where he could find them. He relied on them for work and for his very existence. He'd never known his father, and his mother died of cancer when he was just a child, and he was regularly teased for being parentless. After his mother died, he lived with his grandmother and brother, Nikolai. They were just as poor, and when Savoniak couldn't find work from the Jews, he regularly took to begging on the street. He left school at the age of 14, and he was known by everyone in Domachevo simply as Andrusha, which is a diminutive of Andrei, or Little Andy. But despite their economic, ethnic and social divide, Ben and Andrei were close friends. 
because of the close-knit community spirit, there was no disparity in the socialising and coming together of those of different social standing, ethnicity, or religion in the community. That was until the Russian invasion, when their entire social structure changed. The Russians showed more leniency to those of Belarusian descent, and favoured passing work, land, farms, and food to the more educated and ethnically acceptable populace in the town. The already economically disadvantaged and mostly illiterate Poles, of which Andrei was one of them, found themselves stripped of their livelihoods, their incomes, and often their homes. As work and food became scarce, the Polish took to living and scavenging in the woods, or breaking into the houses of their now even wealthier former neighbours as a means to survive. But as had happened before the invasion, those more affluent neighbours tried, when they could, to help out their fellow townsfolk, passing food and blankets to them when the Russians weren't looking. Then, under the cloak of darkness, would often leave parcels of bread and milk out for his old friend Andrei. But, even with the sporadic help of their neighbours, as the Polish peasants froze and starved through the long cold winters, resentment grew, like the heavy icicles that hung all around them, slowly increasing with the passing of each cold night. And this resentment was aimed not only at the Russians, but also towards their community. But what they didn't realise at this time was that their former friends and neighbours did help them in any way they could, but they would often come under scrutiny of the Russian forces, whom would accuse them of being Polish sympathisers and strip them also of their livelihoods. They may have had warm homes and food on the table, but they were just as much under threat as the freezing peasants. The Russian army's aim was to completely divide the country into the haves and the have-nots, and sympathising or assisting a member of the proletariat would only serve to render them to that class. And then, in June 1941, I have taken occasion to speak to you tonight because we have reached one of the climacterics of the war. At four o'clock this morning, Hitler attacked and invaded Russia. A non-aggression treaty had been solemnly signed and was in force between the two countries. No complaint had been made by Germany of its non-fulfillment. Then, suddenly, without declaration of war, without even an ultimatum, the German bombs rained down from the sky upon the Russian cities. And an hour later, the German ambassador called the state of war existed between Germany and Russia. The attack was known as Operation Barbarossa, and as the German army, or the Wehrmacht as they were known, had the element of surprise against the Russians, they quickly swept through Poland to access the Russian western frontier. The Russians quickly retreated back behind their homeland borders to fight their new surprise enemy from home turf. In their retreating wake, they left a devastated Poland a confused and upturned population whom thought that maybe 
just maybe, the retreat of the Russians meant that they could return to their old, harmonious lives. But once again, marching towards them, was another force that was going to turn their lives upside down. But this time, wealth, status and nationality would be immaterial. Neighbour really would be pitted against neighbour, friend against friend, and religion against religion. It wasn't long before the Wehrmacht stormed into Domachevo and took up residence. From the moment they stepped foot into the town, any semblance of normal life the township had hoped to regain, or even remembered, from before the Russian invasion, was gone forever. Within the first few days of arriving in the town, the Wehrmacht had rounded up forty of the most prominent, wealthiest Jews, and slaughtered them in front of the rest of the town. They then herded as many Jews as they could round up into a hastily put-together ghetto in the most run-down area of the town, an area that had previously housed less than 500 people, was now crammed to the rafters with 3,000. And this all happened in the very first days. Just three days. Once the rounding up had been done, it was evident to the Germans that they hadn't quite captured all of the Jews in town. So they organised a local police force called the Schutzmannschaft, which was made up of community members that were non-Jews, of which Andrei Savoniak joined enthusiastically. Now, at this point, from everything I've read, I don't believe Savoniak's motive for joining the Schutzmannschaft was nefarious. It was a means of employment. Employment meant food, and it meant an abode and warmth. After years under the harsh Russian regime, this must have seemed like the opportunity of a lifetime for the twenty-year-old. And soon, this position in the police force started to have other added benefits. He was no longer the butt of jokes and at the bottom of the societal ladder. He was an ordinary kid, a nobody, whom joined the Schutzmannschaft and became a somebody. So what was the role of the Schutzmannschaft organised by the Wehrmacht? Well, it was to round up the Jews that had escaped the mass herding into the ghetto. When the real function of the Schutzmannschaft became clear, some, including Nikolai, Savoniak's brother, left. But Savoniak chose to stay. Savoniak's newfound power and status clearly started to go to his head. He demanded that he live in a house instead of his ramshackle bungalow, and he chose a house owned by a Jewish carpenter, Yakov Bagley. When Bagley asked him for rent, Savoniak threatened to kill him. During this time, Savoniak married Russian-born Anna Maslova, and from all accounts, she really was the love of his life. But what about Ben? Ben and his family had escaped the initial ghettoization of the town Jews. He and his family had hid in a hole they had dug under their home. But as the Nazis closed in, his father took a lethal dose of morphine. And when the Nazis found the rest of them, his mother, brother and sister 
were caught and killed on the spot, right in front of him. Only Ben escaped, though he was soon captured and put to work in the ghetto with a handful of other Jews grooming horses for the German soldiers. He would often see his old friend, Savoniuk, at a distance, and he hoped for the opportunity to speak with him alone. Maybe his old friend could get him out of there. And one night, he got his chance. As Ben and another local man, Boric, were grooming the horses, Savoniuk walked into the stable to get warm. Ben greeted his old friend, but Savoniuk looked at him with disdain and coldly said, do not think that you will get out of here. When the Germans leave, they will hand you over to us, and we will massacre you, as we have massacred many. Savoniak went on to tell Ben about a mutual friend of theirs, Mir Barlas. He stated that Barlas had tried to rise up against the Germans. Oh, he'd been very brave. But he, Savoniak, soon wiped that bravery out of him, with a shot to the head. Ben was horrified and mortified. How could his old friend be so blasé and unfeeling about killing someone that they knew? So unmoved by the thought of massacring the entire Jewish population of their town, and so apathetic about massacring him. Who was this monster that now stood before him? Boric was clearly also in shock from Savoniuk's callous and indifferent stance, and pointed out to him that when the Germans left, they would leave him behind. They wouldn't take him with him. Savoniuk laughed sardonically and said, Until then, I have the opportunity to finish off the Jews. And with that, he left the stable, leaving behind two very terrified men one of whom realised that whatever friendship had once bonded the two men had perished with war, hatred and murder. In 1942, ten months after the German invasion, Ben began to notice that the Germans were starting to mobilise. He realised that they were preparing to evacuate their camp and that they were unlikely to take live Jewish prisoners with them. He had to escape and with a Schutzmannschaft, including his old friend, Savoniuk, watching the ghetto residents like a hawk, he knew that he had to go soon. He couldn't wait around to find out his fate when the Wehrmacht left. So one night, using a stolen saw, he managed to cut through the bars of his ghetto window. He stole out of the compound under the cover of darkness and disappeared into the heavy foliage of the nearby woods sometimes alone, sometimes with other Jewish fugitives. He lived off stolen potatoes buried by peasants for the winter. However, by the time winter came, Ben's shoes had been stripped bare from his feet. His meagre leather shoes had provided no match for the harsh, rugged terrain of the forest floor. But it was snowing, and his feet soon started to turn black with frostbite, so he wrapped them with rags that he had stolen from neighbouring villages. But the Wehrmacht soon spotted their footprints in the snow and followed them to a clearing where they found Ben and some other fugitives trying to warm their clothes by a campfire. As soon as they were spotted, the Germans opened fire on them. 
when the shooting stopped, the air was eerily silent. Ben had been close to some brush, and he deftly darted into the undergrowth, which gave him instant camouflage. He listened in horror as his friends were gunned down, one by one. Ben waited, shivering with cold and shock, until he heard the Germans retreat, until he could hear them no longer. And then he made a run for it. And he ran as fast as he could, as fast as his bare feet could carry him, each footstep shooting pain through his feet as he ploughed through the heavy arctic snow underfoot. For almost two miles he ran, until his feet could carry him no more, until the cold, frost-laden air seared his lungs with each breath. He knew he needed to set up a fire quickly, otherwise he would freeze to death. He felt he was far enough away from the Germans now, that it would be safe to set up a camp. He gathered brush and twigs and set up the base for a fire. He then reached into his pocket and pulled out the matchbox, opened it, and there were only three matches inside. His hands shook with the cold as he lit the first match. He warmed his hands under his armpits to stop them from shaking, and carefully he lit the second match. This was his last match. After warming his hands again under his armpits, he held the match and the box under his ragged coat to stop the wind blowing out the flame, and... Oh, phew, at last. As he tried to warm himself by the small fire, he contemplated what he had done to deserve this. He was filthy, hungry, cold, riddled with lice, and being hunted down like an animal, simply because of his religion, and by a former friend. He could not see how he was going to survive the long winter, and he began to contemplate suicide. And as he mulled this thought over, he heard a noise. Ben instinctively jumped up and began to run to the brush. But as he did, he spotted a man coming directly towards him. A man with his hands up. A man whom wore rags just like him. A man whom was also a Jew on the run just like him. The two banded together and became vigilantes. They found a hidden store with guns and ammunition and began holding up the trucks that were ferrying food to the soldiers. They were surviving the only way they could, but it kept them alive. Ben's instinct about the Germans making plans to leave had been right, and escaping the camp that night had most likely saved his life. Just before Yom Kippur in 1942, the Einsatzgruppe arrived in the town. The Einsatzgruppe are the parliamentary death squads of Nazi Germany that were responsible for mass killings, and they had arrived in town for one reason. On the night before Yom Kippur started, on the 20th of September 1942, the Einsatzgruppe entered the Domachevo ghetto. They rounded up the inhabitants of the ghetto and marched them into the sandhills on the edge of town. 
the road they took would become known as the route of death. There were three thousand Jews who marched from the ghetto that night, and over the course of the next twenty-five hours, until sundown on Yom Kippur, two thousand nine hundred Jews from the ghetto were dead. One hundred had managed to escape the route of death. For his service in assisting the Einsatzgruppe in the genocide of his fellow neighbours and former friends, Savoniak was promoted to Commandant of the Schutzmannschaft. <laughs> After the massacre, the Wehrmacht moved from Domachevo onto the next village to commence their genocidal onslaught there. However, Savoniak and his Schutzmannschaft were put in charge of rounding up the hundred Jews that had escaped the Yom Kippur massacre. If Savoniak wasn't already a sadistic, vengeful Philistine who wielded malevolent power over his former friends and neighbours, his rancorous anger was about to become a whole lot worse after his wife, Anna Maslova, was killed by crossfire in an attack by partisans on the town in November 1943. As the crossfire came from a partisan group, Savoniak began to take revenge on all of the people in the township not just the Jews he managed to find. Eight-year-old Shaya Edel was found in hiding by Savoniuk. He pulled him out into the street and... Oh, he set fire to his beard and stabbed him repeatedly with bayonets. It is even alleged he shot a baby in the head. <sighs> Unbelievable. The more atrocities that Savoniuk enacted the more bloodthirsty he seemed to become. Savoniak took a central part in the hunt-and-kill operation of the escaped Jews for a few months until it was complete. It is estimated that he killed 200 Jews from Domachevo and neighbouring villages during the round-up operation, and he did it with more enthusiasm than most. However, by 1944... Savoniak noticed that the Germans were preparing to move out from the area. He inquired as to whether they were moving on to another region, but he was told that they were pulling out altogether. The Russians were advancing on the frontier at lightning speed, and it wouldn't be long before they would take over this region. With the German supply routes damaged by war, ammunition and provisions were struggling to get to the battlefront, and so the Wehrmacht was in retreat. Savoniak remembered how the Russians had favoured the wealthy Jews during their occupation, how he'd been tossed to the bottom of the societal heap, all because he was Polish and not Belarusian. And he also knew that the Russians were taking no prisoners when it came to German sympathisers. And he knew that the remaining townsfolk would be sure to turn him into the Russians after what he'd done to them. And so... Being the coward that he was, Savoniak retreated with the Wehrmacht. In order to gain their security and protection, he joined the Belarusian unit of the SS. As the Wehrmacht retreated, Savoniak's unit was posted to Warsaw. There is evidence to suggest that his unit of the SS was involved in perpetrating atrocities in the Warsaw region. The unit was subsequently moved to France to conduct war against the partisans a job which Savoniak had been so enthusiastically learning back in Domachevo. 
Four months later, with a German war effort in tatters, he deserted. And he used his Polish birth certificate to enrol in the Polish Free Army, where he was briefly posted to Egypt and then Italy. We know of Savoniak's movements after leaving Domachevo from two documents. The first, a German Wehrmacht document that accounted for all soldiers that had retreated from Poland when the Russians advanced, and which had Savoniak's name on it. And the second document was from the Polish army record, which showed his admittance to the Polish Free Army. But then... This is London. The Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Winston Churchill. Yesterday morning... At 2.41 a.m., General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Forces. Hostilities will end officially at one minute after midnight tonight. Tuesday, the 8th of May. The German war is therefore at an end. After years of intense preparation, Germany hurled herself on Poland at the beginning of September 1939. After gallant France had been struck down, we from this island and from our United Empire maintained the struggle single-handed for a whole year. Until we were joined by the military might of Soviet Russia and later by the overwhelming power and resources of the United States of America. Finally, almost the whole world was combined against the evildoers who are now prostrate before us. Long live the cause of freedom. God save the king. The war was finally over. Asavoniak was now part of the Allied forces, because he was part of the Polish Free Army. His unit was removed from France in 1945 and sent to Glasgow in Scotland. He was demobilised in Sussex in 1947 and began a new life in the UK. But little of his later movements are known, other than he moved to South London at some point in the 1950s and became a ticket inspector with British Rail. Hmm. I definitely don't like the fact that a genocidaire whom switched sides to save his own skin after inhumanely killing hundreds of Jews took up residence in my country. Do you? In the aftermath of the war, the makeup of Europe drastically changed. The Allied nations reorganised the continent with the intention of protecting their respective spheres of influence, with the Americans, British and the French in Western Europe and the Soviets in Eastern Europe. They also hoped that this division into spheres would prevent future world wars. 
Hmm. Which is ironic, as this division sowed the seeds for the Cold War. Hmm. In particular, Russia wanted to create a sphere of influence in Central and Eastern Europe, starting with Poland. This was in order to provide the Soviet Union with a geopolitical buffer zone between it and the Western capitalist world. Poland's borders, which prior to the war had stretched from Lithuania and Latvia in the north, all along the Russian border to Romania in the south. Well, it literally moved west into Germany and halved in size after the war. Russia divided up the area of Poland that they had taken into Belarus and Ukraine, so that Poland shared no border at all with Russia. I am telling you this information because Domachevo, which had sat near the very centre of Poland prior to the war, moved into the western border of Belarus after the war and changed its name to Damachevo. However, as this episode concentrates on the crimes committed during the war when the town was called Domachevo and was considered part of Poland, I will continue to call it by its Polish name for the rest of the episode. Back to the story. So, we've heard about how that cowardly turncoat, Savoniak, survived the war and found freedom and anonymity in the UK. But what about Ben? Did he survive the war? Well, we left off with Ben having partnered up with a companion, and the pair had taken to becoming modern-day highwaymen, looting and pillaging the German food and ammunition trucks as they made their way to the front lines. In 1943, the Russians dropped paratroopers into the area to organise partisan resistance groups, and Ben and his companion joined this group. They were responsible for interrupting supply chains such as blowing up train tracks, phone lines and bridges. Ben remained with the partisan resistance group until the Russians liberated the area in 1944. At that point, he donned a uniform and joined the Red Army, as they sallied forth and slowly took back occupied areas from the Wehrmacht. As the army made their way towards Lublin in Poland, his unit came across something unlike anything they'd encountered up to that point in the war. Sitting just on the outskirts of the town was what looked like an army barracks, but there didn't seem to be any soldiers defending the site. As they entered the barracks, they soon realised that it was anything but an army barracks. Laying, writhing, crawling and shuffling amongst the row upon row upon row of one-storey wooden shacks were thousands of people in writ, torn, blue-striped clothing that would not hold up against the raw, bitter temperatures of a Polish winter. But these people... Well... <laughs> They didn't look like people. They were skeletal. Their skin was hanging off exposed ribs and pelvises. Their faces so taut that their heads looked like skulls. Their hair was crudely shorn with lumps of flesh ripped out. Their skin pallid with festering pustules. Their frames bent and so weak they didn't have the strength to stand. They looked like ghosts, not people. He entered one of the huts and saw piles and piles of shoes and glasses and human hair. At the far end of the camp, 
he saw a building that stood apart from the rest of the wooden huts, a more robust building, with a tall chimney that belched black, acrid, foul-smelling smoke into the air. As they moved amongst the forsaken souls strewn around the camp, he noticed the Star of David was on many of the people in the striped clothing. He approached them and began speaking in Yiddish to them. One of them shuffled towards him. He was a shadow of a man, a human ghost almost. He looked at Ben, his eyes brimming over. He smiled and he whispered, Now I can die because I have seen another Jew who will be able to tell the world what happened. The full horror and realisation of what he was actually witnessing hit him. This was no army barracks. It was Majinek, a Nazi concentration and extermination camp. He would never, ever forget what he saw that day, and he vowed he would keep the promise to a dying shadow of a man. Ben stayed with the Red Army until the end of the war in 1945. As his unit celebrated and rejoiced the end of the war and started to make plans to go home, Ben realised he had nowhere to go. There was no point going back to Domachevo. There was no one there waiting for him. His entire family were dead, his childhood home undoubtedly destroyed by the Wehrmacht. So Ben joined the long list of refugees whom required rehoming in another country after the war. And in 1948, Ben's wishes were finally granted. He was permitted permanent residency in Israel. He set up a successful building contractor firm, married another Polish refugee, Clara, and they went on to have two children and seven grandchildren. As soon as World War II ended, the Nuremberg trials began. These were a series of military tribunals most notable for the prosecution of prominent members of Nazi Germany that had planned, carried out, or otherwise participated in the Holocaust and other war crimes. Whilst many perpetrators were tried and convicted during the trials, it also became clear that many had fled after the war to avoid retribution. But once the trials were over, there were few other sanctions in place to capture war criminals as nations ploughed their resources into rebuilding their own countries and moving on. But one man couldn't move on. Wouldn't move on. And it was this man that was to start the chain of events that would bring two old friends face to face after 57 years. One a witness and the other a warmonger. Please allow me to introduce you to a very remarkable man, Simon Wiesenthal. When millions were murdered, why was I allowed to live? For more than half a century, Simon Wiesenthal has asked himself this question again and again. He came out of the Holocaust with nobody, nothing, 99 pounds, he was barely alive. And with that, he wouldn't give up. <sighs> Wiesenthal really forced to bring Nazi criminals to justice and to leave the historic record of what they had done. He was the only one who systematically tried to find Eichmann. 
your organization had tracked down some 1,100 yes. Nazis. Not the Jewish James Bond. I'm only a survivor who pays with a dedicated work for the privilege to remain alive. Hmm. A truly amazing man. But how did Simon Wiesenthal start the chain of events that would bring two former friends together over half a century later? And uh, you're going to have to wait until next week to find out. I know, I know, another two-parter. I got a few messages after the Bradford two-parter that you don't like to have to wait a week to hear the rest of the story. And I do promise that I will try to avoid them. But this story spans over half a century and deals with some very tragic events and turbulence in history. And so to truncate it into one episode would not do justice to the victims' stories and the magnitude of what they endured during Europe's darkest hours. And I feel I would be selling you short. But trust me, you're going to want to hear the next episode where we find out what happens when these two old friends are finally in a room together after 57 years. I'd just like to thank my very good friend, Shane Huby, for lending his voice to today's episode. Thank you, little bro. I would also like to thank NXXXX for their five-star review on iTunes. Well, I XXXXU. So thank you. And please don't forget to rate and review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. I know you must get sick of me saying it each week, but honestly, I wouldn't ask if it weren't important. Rates on reviews promote the podcasting platforms to share my podcast with potential new listeners all over the world. And even more importantly, you would be making one little podcaster in the deepest, darkest depths of winter in a remote, far-flung village in the north of England. Very happy. But going back to listeners from all over the world. Oh yes, it's that time of the week where I'm probably asking to fillet a ferret in Finnish rather than thanking listeners from their respective countries. But yes, it's on to the annihilation. So this week, I'd like to thank Poland. Dzień dobry, dzień kurci. I thought it appropriate to thank Poland in this week's episode, given the content of today's story. But next, Thailand. Sewadi le kokun. Yikes, that verit has been completely filleted. Many apologies for the utter destruction, but I'm nothing if not consistent in my enunciation faux pas. Oh, and don't forget to come and join me on Facebook and Instagram. Just look up Darkseid. Come have a chat or share a story with me. I'd love to hear from you. So until next time, stay safe. Stay alert. Seuss. Over and out. <laughs>